now. Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. On the programme this morning, your chance to quiz the Scottish Health Secretary. What do you think of health services in your area? If we look at Greater Glasgow and Clyde, there have been seven deaths linked to infections picked up in hospitals this year alone. So just how safe are our hospitals? The hospital has taken every measure that could humanly be put in place to deal with this. In Tayside, the amount of chemotherapy you can get has been cut, meaning it's a postcode lottery when it comes to cancer treatment in Scotland. What impact is that having on patients? Is it fair? Is the NHS a breaking point? Put your thoughts to Jean Freeman after 11. We're also talking about council salaries this morning. A list published this week revealed the number of workers getting paid 100 grand a year or more, some getting more than the First Minister. So are these huge pay packets fair when so many people are struggling? And are subjects like music, art and PE becoming a thing of the past in our primary schools? I think actually the pressures on teachers and the cracks in our education system are already showing and we are needing something to be done. The government have to start listening to us. It's all about opinions and we're looking for yours. The phone lines are open now. 0333 2020 401. This is Scotland's Talking. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. So how much do you think people in the top jobs at the council should be paid? More than the First Minister of Scotland? Well, in many areas, that's the case, as the Taxpayers' Alliance released its annual rich list this week. Nicola Sturgeon earns around about £135,000 a year to be the leader of this country. But, according to the list, the chief executive of one small part of the country, South Lanarkshire, is paid £180,000, nearly £50,000 more than Mrs Sturgeon. Now, she's not alone. There are another 20 council workers getting paid more than the First Minister. Duncan Simpson is from the Taxpayers Alliance, which put together this list. I think these figures are incredibly difficult to see. Uh, you know, year after year, we see these uh, numbers rising across across the whole of the UK. For instance, we've got you know, quite a few figures who are earning more than £100,000. Um, indeed, across the whole of Scotland this year, um, everyone is seeing an increase in their in their council tax after you know a, a previous freeze and, and, and much lower rises. So it's it's very jarring when people uh, are told that they have to be paying more. They're forced to pay more through their council tax, and yet at the same time, senior employees um, feel the need to feel the need to pay themselves even more. And ultimately, we're, we're paying council tax for some some services which which we've agreed to do. And if you look at you know, similar councils across across the border in in England as well, I mean in Northumberland, uh, take take as an example, there were two. Senior employees uh, last year who are earning well in excess of um, £300,000 and, and, and £400,000. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I, I don't really buy the argument that we need to pay a lot of money to these people because otherwise they would go and, they would go and work in the private sector. I mean, we're told a lot of the time that people who um, choose to work in councils or indeed any um, public services do this because they are uh, motivated by public duty. And I think that's perfectly good uh, ambition and rationale to go and do that kind of work um, but ultimately that you can't really square that circle if you're insisting on a demanding more council tax from all of us and b choosing to pay your um, senior staff even more
So what do you think? Do you think then that they deserve that? Should we being asked? Does Duncan have a point there? Well, the debt charity Step Change seems to think so. Their research revealed this week more than 700,000 people in Scotland are struggling with debt and 46% of everyone contacting them for advice are in council tax arrears. So do you think top-level council workers are paid too much? Should we see some cuts there to make up for the cuts to our services and rise in council tax? Or are their salaries justified? Does it matter how much they are paid and does the blame for the lack of funding actually lie at Holyrood? What are your thoughts on that? Where does the blame lie here? Should we be asking these chief executives, uh, chiefs of departments in local councils, should they be taking a cut in their salaries? Does anybody really need to earn over £150,000 a year? And at the same time, they're looking at services that they can cut what are your thoughts on that? As always, the phone lines are open, 0333. Give me a call. The phone lines, as I say, are there. Give us a call if you want to take part. You can also, it's the usual phone number, and you can also, of course, come through on the old text. Um, and uh, we're on hashtag Scotland's Talking for Twitter as well. All the details in a few moments. 150 grand. Very nice work if you can get it. Some of them more than that. What are your thoughts? You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. OK, Scotland's Talkin', we've got our first caller on. John, how are you? Hi, thank you, Ali. Right, uh, so what do you think of this then? Well, actually, I'm the vice chair of South Lanarkshire's uh, self-directed support network, and we're a voluntary charity advise people about self-direct support. We don't employ MD, we just do it voluntary ourselves. We were under the impression when the leader of South Lanarkshire Council started about three years ago, she was on 126,000, which seemed a huge amount. Mm-hmm. I was amazed today to hear that she's on 180,000. Now, I'm spina bifida paraplegic, 62-year-old. Uh, I get a care package from the council, I was getting charged £111 a month. That went up to £277 uh, a month. And I asked for their charging policy for 2017-18. And I was told I can't get a copy. They don't have a copy of it. They're supposed to have a charging policy. And uh, my MSP uh, has written asked for it under Freedom of Information. Mm-hmm. He can't get a copy either. And come the 1st of April, under Frank's law, they shouldn't be charging anybody for their personal care. Now, I spoke to the council uh, people at the top about a week ago, and they do not have... This came in on the 1st of April. They do not have any policy on it. They don't know what they're doing about it. Although legally they should not be charging people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're still charging people uh, under Frank's law for personal care, who, which they shouldn't be doing. And I do not see anybody justifying themselves £180,000 a year when they can't run the council for the council people, tenants. So you think that, the, the, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with, you know, on, on some of them, um, you know, these are salaries that have been negotiated by, by COSLA, their, their organising body, and, and therefore they, they say what their, 
they've got to be paid. Um, and, and I just wonder, you know, if, if anybody did, did feel it in their conscience that they should hand some of it back where it would go, it would probably wouldn't happen like that. It's not as easy to do that. And if somebody applies for a job and the job is advertised at whatever, then they're, then they're going, if they're applying for it, they're going to take that salary, aren't they? So you can't really blame it on the chief executive, or can you? Do you blame that on the chief I think you can blame it in the system. It's no use saying, oh, it's the way it is because Coswell's agree that Coswell's there to look after them. Uh, but that's not an interest of uh, the, the people in that uh, area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's no use saying, well, they've got to get 180,000 and they'll leave if they don't. You know, there's always somebody below them that can take that job over. That's right, there's yeah. somebody could do that job at a lower rate. There's always people be willing to. So it's just, we seem to be able to have huge inflation. At, uh, I mean, that person started three years ago, allegedly 126,000. It's been up to 180,000. Now, they're paying uh, for personal, some PA, some personal assistance for people and telling them they're paying them a living wage, uh, which is £9. And that council is telling them to pay them £8.70. Now, that letter came out two days after, uh, in November, two days after the living wage went up to £9 from £8.75. And they're still paying the £8.75 rate. They should be paying much higher. It should be a whole different system, which came in years ago. So nobody should be under that old system. So it's not... Enough to say, well, Coswell agreed it, they advertised the job, so that person should get 180,000. That person's got to justify mm-hmm. why they're getting 180. What is so special about them? And there's not, obviously, clearly, nothing special about them when people are living in poverty because of them, because of their mismanagement. OK, John, thank you very much indeed for your call, kicking us off there on how much you think people in the top jobs in your local council should be paid. Many of them are being paid more than the First Minister of Scotland. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister responsible for governing the whole of Scotland. Many chief executives uh, looking after smaller areas are paid more than she is. So what is your thoughts on that? As we heard from John there, you can give us a call on 033 Scotland's talking for a Sunday morning. It's all about your opinions and looking for yours, of course. As always this morning, just after 11 o'clock, we'll be joined by the Health Secretary for Scotland, Helen Freeman, who'll be taking your calls on any subject regarding the health service. Any question you've got, then uh, you can get in now with your question. You can phone now and uh, log yourself in there. 033 uh, At the moment, we're also uh, looking at how much you think people in the top jobs in councils should be paid. Uh, here's one in from and the, the text from Gregor. He says, I've been in poll tax arrears since it started. Uh, can't see a way out, but I pay it now as much as I can anyway. And I'm skint after about the 10th day of the month. Uh, Gregor, I, 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 my sympathies are with you, but um, 
uh, it's a long time to be paying uh, poll tax back, but uh, I'm sure you've taken some advice on that. Maybe it's, it's something you can go and see citizens' advice about and see if you can get away around that. But thanks for getting in touch. Irene has also been in touch and she says, it's a case with the council where I live that the uh, libraries are being affected. They're talking about school classes being increased, teachers being decreased, uh, no more lollipop men and women in some areas, toilets are being closed, but we can still afford the big chunk of money for the officers who hide behind the councillors. And then the councillor says it's not really us, it is, of course, the, the officers. So we'll go around in circles and don't really get anywhere. Thank you very much indeed, Irene, for that call as well, uh, well for the text. Keep them coming in, as always. Uh, delighted to hear from you. That phone number uh, for Scotland's talking, 0333 2020 401. Scotland's talking, the podcast. Sunday morning, Scotland's talking. I'm Ali Bally. Good morning to you. Uh, talking there about uh, how much you think the top jobs are worth in the council and should the chief executives be really paid more than the first minister of Scotland? And if they're paying that much on, on top people, could they be uh, reducing that and giving some of our services that they find they've got to cut? Um, and and I, I suppose this is linked in the same way. I'm talking here about um, primary school children. There are fears that primary school children could be missing out on learning about music or art or even not getting the chance to do PE. It's as the Scottish Government releases its teacher census, which shows the number in those specialist subject areas have fallen every year since 2011. In fact, it's dropped by more than 40%. Let's look specifically at music, for example, which seems to have suffered the most. In 2011, there were 108 teachers across the country whose main job was to teach music. Last year, there were 62. Let's just go through that again. In 2011, 108 teachers across the country who taught music. Last year, there are now 62, with 10 local authority areas having none at all. Now, one person concerned about these new figures is Alison Harris. She's the Children and Young People's Spokesperson for Scottish Conservatives, and she's been talking to our reporter, Paul Kelly. I'm absolutely horrified that the numbers of dedicated music teachers have dropped so dramatically in the past seven years. You know, they've actually plummeted by 42%, which, when you look at things in the overall, that's nearly half. And I think this will have a huge impact on children when they're at primary school because, you know, you have to really appreciate that learning music at primary school is a fantastic life skill to actually develop and have. And so, I mean, presumably in a lot of schools where we're seeing that don't have a specialist music teacher, um, this is just kind of contributing to the workload of other classroom teachers. Is that something that is just going to make the job that teachers have even more difficult? Yeah, abs- absolutely. If you know, if the workload, you know, the workload of our teachers in primary schools is already huge, and I think that when you don't have the dedicated music teachers in our primary schools helping out, then you know, and teaching what they should be teaching, if you're requiring you know the teachers to do this as well, then yes, obviously the workload will be increasing. 
And looking at the figures here, it's, it's not just music teachers. I mean, there's there's a lot of local authorities that that don't have uh, that have either no or very low numbers for art teachers, PE teachers, even additional support needs, learning support. Is that a kind of big concern for you? Do you think? Yes, it's it very much is a big concern. I think wherever you see teacher numbers fall, obviously this is going to stretch our teachers who are in the profession. And, you know, I think basically we're not giving our young children the best opportunities in life. You know, it's important they learn music. It's important they have BE. It's important they learn art. You know, these are life skills that they have to learn when they're in primary school. And in terms of the kind of numbers we're seeing for additional support needs teachers and, and learning support, um, not having them or having kind of few of them that in some areas that's something that's putting a strain not only on the teachers themselves but it's also making it kind of difficult for for kids that are already maybe having a hard time in school to to kind of catch up or keep up with what's being taught you know i think actually the pressures on teachers and the cracks in our education system are already showing it's not really just children who have, you know, who are in need of extra additional support or, you know, who, who are needing, a, you know, needing help. It's actually across the board that, you know, the cracks are there. Our, our education system is in difficulty and we are needing something to be done. The government have to start listening to us. There needs to be changes and teachers need, we need more teachers across the board. And so what kind of action would you like to see taken on this? Is it just a case of recruiting more teachers or do you think there are other changes needed as well? Yes, I mean, I think recruitment is absolutely essential going forward. You know, we really need to sit down and seriously look at the overall workforce planning that that we, requ we require. You know, I think we have to appreciate that, you know, the curriculum for excellence, you know, with this has also, the workload for teachers has hugely increased and the teaching profession is currently not regarded as an attractive profession to be in. So, yes, we need to look at this going forward. Alison Harris, she's the Children and Young People's Spokesperson for the Scottish Conservatives. Well, we spoke to the EIS and it comes, this, it comes after several councils either introduced or increased fees for music lessons. Edinburgh, Glasgow, Orkney and the Western Isles are the only areas not to charge. Larry Flanagan is Secretary of the EIS and says it's highlighting major flaws in the education system as a whole. Clearly the figures presented are worrying in that we see a drop in the number of additional support in these teachers in uh, primary schools and a drop in the number of music teachers in primary schools. Uh, all of this creates additional pressure on classroom teachers because uh, the curriculum still has to be delivered. Um, I think our view would be very strongly that whilst there is national guidance, uh, local authorities have to ensure that they are maintaining the number of suitably qualified teachers to deliver the curriculum effectively across the whole of the primary sector. Uh, and if that means ESN specialists or it means art or music or drama specialists, then um, they should make sure that that is factored into their staffing levels and pupils get the benefit of that specialised teaching. So what is the situation like at your local primary schools? Do the kid get to do music, PE or art? Let us know. Here's that number again if you'd like to comment. 033 2020 401.
The king of wishful thinking, talkie of wishful thinking, Phil uh, sends me this text and he says, maybe we could invite these high earners in the council onto the show and they can justify why they're worth all that mega money. I, for one, would be very interested to hear their explanations, but I won't be holding my breath. Thanks very much indeed, Phil. Um, just going back to, we're talking about teacher numbers and uh, the in the, the councils regarding music in particular. Uh, the Scottish government sent us this uh, little statement. Teacher numbers in Scottish schools are at their highest since 2010, but we recognise there are recruitment challenges and that's why we've increased targets for recruitment and created new routes into the profession to make it more practical and flexible for people. Music education is of enormous benefit and we're working to find solutions to help it remain accessible to all. So is it fair on pupils? That's, I suppose, one of the questions we've got to ask. Is it is it fair on pupils that they, they're losing out on things like music, etc.? Uh, Tommy's on the line. Hi, Tommy, how are you doing? Oh, not bad, Ali. Thanks very much. OK. Uh, I think just, just my point was, and I actually took music myself at school, so I'll give me better... Um, back up what I'm going to say. Uh, the music class in, in school, it's just a complete skive. It always was. Um, as far as I'm concerned, in, in terms of sort of overall contribution, um, music does nothing for, for kids. I think this, the education system has got bigger fish to fry. I'm certainly not suggesting that music's not important, but I think, you know, to get it as a subject at school, it's almost like it's just a, a period off. Um, as far as I'm concerned, get the kids being able to count, read and write, and then, you know, uh, but everybody knows it, that the music class is just a complete skive. So you took, you said you took music. Are you saying that you didn't learn to play any musical instrument then? Exactly. Uh, it was a case of just sit there and, you know, we would get some things about reading music and, and, and I'll be honest with you as well, see the ones that are actually in the class who were sort of trying to learn to play an instrument and whatever. I'll, I'll be honest, they were actually rubbish at it. They were wasting their time. Anybody who's got any musical talent does it in their own time and, and their brain's tuned in that way. You, you know, they're not going to learn anything by sitting with a teacher for half an hour, 40 minutes messing about. Is that not a bit of a shame on those kids who can and want to learn, that they're being held back by people like you who are skiving just... For skiving's sake. Well, well, well I, I don't understand how I would be holding it, holding them back. And by the way, the skiving, the, the fish rots for the head down. The teachers there, they didn't control the class. Mm-hmm. If we're sitting doing nothing, that's because of them. And it's because of the actual archetype of music teachers. I'll be honest with you, there was two different music teachers and they were exactly the same. It was just a carry on. And it, what my point is, is anybody who's musically talented or has an ability... They do it in their own time. They're actually brains tuned in to be able to play musical instruments. They're not learning to do it sitting in a class. OK, Tommy, thank you very much indeed for that view. Uh, we're coming up to the news at 11. Uh, you may have a view on that. But uh, coming up after the news at 11, we'll be joined by the Health Secretary, Jean Freeman. If you've got a point you would like to make to her or a question you'd like to put to her regarding the health service in Scotland, then uh, get your call in now. That number again is 0333 2020 401. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Scotland's Talkin', and this week the NHS has once again been in the spotlight with French concerns about how safe 
are our hospitals. It comes after the death of a third premature baby at the Princess Royal Maternity Hospital in Glasgow after an infection was found at a neonatal unit. Three other babies had the same kind of blood infection back in January and only one of them made it home. The other two sadly died. It prompted huge concern from the public about why this has happened and what has been done to prevent it. Let's hear first from NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde's Chief of Medicine for Women and Children, Dr Alan Mathers, who can tell us a bit more about this infection. So Staphylococcus aureus is a, um, a bacteria that covers uh, most of our skin. Um, so large numbers of people have this, but there are many, many different strains of it. And um, if these strains get into your body system, um, whether through skin or, or uh, other means, um, then you can become infected. Uh, that can cause dyspepsemia and uh, death. Um, so it's, a, it's an organism that we all live with. There are, uh, in this particular case, is a very rare uh, subtype of this that was previously never seen in the United Kingdom. Um, so we have been very rigorous in our efforts to try and um, manage this because there is a concern that this is one of these... Uh, bacteria that is now coming into the UK health system. So from the point of view of the, the hospital has taken every measure that could humanly be done, put in place to deal with this. Um, we have had uh, every part of the neonatal unit has been cleaned using a thing called hydrogen peroxide vapour which is considered to be the gold standard way of, uh, of uh, managing uh, bacteria. Um, in addition to that, we have put in a policy of screening staff members. Every baby is being screened, and that um, policy of screening every baby on a weekly basis will continue until we've had four weeks of negative um, results. Scottish Labour's health spokesperson Monica Lennon also spoke to us following the most recent death and is calling for better transparency from the NHS. The news that a third baby has died at the Princess Royal Maternity following an infection is both very sad and worrying. Public confidence sadly has been shaken by a number of high-profile infections in Scotland's hospitals in recent months. So NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde and the Scottish Government must be open with the public about what they know, about what the risks are and about what action they are taking to keep people safe in our hospitals. And who better to respond to calls for answers, transparency and reassurance than the Scottish Health Secretary, Jean Freeman, who joins us on the programme now. Jean, good morning. Welcome back to the programme. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you again. Last time you were on the show was uh, Social Security. You were looking after that brief. Now health, a completely different one. Is it? Is it one you welcomed? It is. Um, I was a wee bit sorry not to uh, uh, continue with Social Security because I'd I did very much love doing that work, but health is uh, an area I've got background in, uh, a family that uh, has worked in our National Health Service uh, and uh, a a service that is very close to my heart. So uh, I was keen to take it on as well. Good. Well, as always, um, we open the phone lines and take the calls. So if you have a point you would like to make to the Health Secretary, give us a call 0333 2020 401. That number again, 0333 2020 401. Um, how do you react, Jean, when you hear parents are not 
able to take their babies home because of infections breaking out in neonatal wards. I suppose the one place that their babies are supposed to be safe and protected uh, more than anywhere else. Well, it's it's incredibly sad and I'm very uh, sad and feel uh, uh, greatly for the parents uh, who've been affected by this. But, you know, as the doctor said, uh, this is a, a bacteria that we all carry, many of us carry. Uh, for most of us, uh, it, it doesn't cause us any harm at all. Uh, in this particular instance, it was a, a new strain of uh, bacteria. So uh, the antibiotics and standard other measures uh, didn't work against it. Uh, I I feel also for the staff involved. Uh, this is an intensive neonatal unit, so these are very vulnerable, brand-new human beings who uh, are not, I think, as the doctor said on a previous broadcast, not quite ready for the world yet mm-hmm. uh, and are being looked after very carefully and very skillfully. But that does make them additionally vulnerable uh, to the kind of infection that... Uh, a few years on, uh, or you and I uh, would have no trouble with at all. The hospital have done everything that they possibly can, uh, right up to that hydrogen peroxide vapour. They continue to do all of that work. They continue uh, to do the screening uh, to make sure that there are no more cases. And I think both the health board uh, and ourselves have been very transparent about this. Uh, I have not hesitated to uh, inform both the Parliament and also to do programmes like this to explain what we're trying to do uh, and to explain too that overall, in terms of infections that were headline news not that many years ago, MRSA, E. difficile, uh, those figures have come down substantially, uh, between 80 and 90% across Scotland. So we are winning the battle against infection, but any experienced uh, clinician will tell you that infection is always around Mm -hmm. and so we have to uh, continuously be uh, vigilant about that but also look and always look and see if there is more that we can do. You know, we're talking there about the the staff and the patients and the family. Um, and I know you you visit these hospitals, you visit these these units. What is the um, the effect? Do you think it has on staff morale uh, when something like this happens, and then uh, there's all the headlines about it? Mm. Do you think this this has an effect on them? I do. I mean, I think that we forget sometimes that you know s- staff hurt. Uh, This is a a painful, uh, emotionally difficult time if you are a nurse in an intensive neonatal unit and one of the wee ones that you're caring for with your team uh, or you're a doctor, consultant, whatever you might be, domestic, anyone in that team, uh, when one of the wee ones that you are caring for dies, that hurts. Um, And we forget about that. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I think that it is entirely right and proper for people to challenge me about what I'm doing, but I don't think it's fair to then leap to our health service isn't safe because that's not true. Um, infection is a fact of life in our health service. Our job as uh, clinicians and nurses and others is to do what they do every single day right now in our hospitals Nurses and domestics and clinicians, consultants will be working extremely hard to make sure that their patients are safe. My job is to make sure that they have 
uh, all the resources they need to do that and that where they have concerns and issues that they want to raise, that they can freely do so and they're listened to. OK, we'll come back to some uh, some of these points in a moment. But um, as always, we take the calls and we take the calls as they come in. And it's Catherine first. Catherine, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Ali and Health Minister, Ms Freeman. Right, good morning. You're, you're through to, to the Health Minister. So what's your, what's your point? Um, I'm actually quite concerned about the poor care that myself and my family members have experienced. And I know from speaking to others with long-term health conditions, that there are many concerns and we don't feel that um, healthcare is actually really getting much better, unfortunately. Um, and I'm a former health professional, so I know what the standards probably should be. Um, and I'm particularly concerned about waiting times. And as a family, we actually know more than most of the consequences of that because my dad, my dad actually died because his return appointments were cancelled several times. He ended up with um, septicemia and... Um, multi-organ failure and to switch off his life support machines so and I also know of patients that have felt so desperate due to their poor care that they've even attempted suicide so that the, 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 we, we hear that all this money's getting pumped in and you know there's rising waiting times and calls for non-pharmaceutical approaches and they're particularly um, you know you know targeting opioids and um all, all um, the, the hospital that I depended on, all our beds were cut at the NHS Centre for Integrative Care and the nurses were cut down from 22 to just two full-time and two part-time. We've lost eight doctors, only one was replaced. That's just left four doctors. For people with really serious chronic long-term conditions, we need these beds replaced. But they've really made a difference to people like myself who have chronic conditions and are just trying to get a better quality of life. And I know lots of other people that have got chronic pain and there, there are really, really long waiting lists for that. Right. And yet but they, they specialise in that at this hospital. And, and, and yet we, we, patients are really suffering. Right, Catherine, let the, the health secretary come in and uh, um, give her, th- your thought, her thoughts on, on what you've been saying so far. So, Catherine, good morning to you. And I'm, I'm really sorry that that's been your experience and particularly sorry about the... Uh, what you've told me about the the death of your dad uh, must have been exceptionally hard for you. Uh, we are putting more money into our health service. I have about just just under fifty percent of the entire Scottish budget, but the trick is to make sure that it goes in the right direction. And I hear what you're saying about the Centre for Integrated Care, and I know that there was a lot of concern around uh, the decisions that the Health Board made about that at the time when they made it. But there were also uh, clinical views that that was not the best use of resources. Uh, I'm sure that you've already, uh, I hope you've already had the opportunity of some discussions uh, with representatives of the Health Board about it. I know that... Their chair, John Brown, would be very happy to have those discussions with you and to make sure that um, if if the care that you need is not available anymore through that centre, that it is available to you uh, from other places. Uh, and if you feel that is not the case, then uh, I would hope that after the programme you would let me know that and let me know what specifically is the the lack that you see, either in pain relief or or in other uh, forms of care that we can then have a look at and see if there is more that we can do. 
Catherine, does that answer some of your question? I know you've been on the programme before and yeah. you, you you have talked about this particular issue. Um, you're now, you know, you've said you've not been listened to before. Um, mm. Do you think that the, the Health Secretary is listening to you now, giving you an invitation to, to talk to her afterwards if, if you feel you're not being listened to? I mean, I hope, I hope changes will happen but many of us I mean I'm involved with the Health and Social Care Alliance and many of us just feel that we're just a tick box <laughs> you know that the, 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 um, the annual review that I went to recently where I also put my views it's just a tick box, they don't actually listen, if, she, if the health secretary takes trouble to listen back she'll see it's the same people coming year after year with the same issue and nothing ever changes in between each meeting um, we're very frustrated um, you know, we're only it's about our quality of life I mean, mm-hmm. I know my conditions are incurable I've, even my, my conventional consultant says to me, I don't know what I'm going to do because he depended on the centre for integrative care when I took on well because I was allergic to all conventional medication I was sent there 26 years ago to try and make me you know, to try and give me a better quality of life and that's what it did for me and thousands of other people but yet that, that service is now denied to us mm. and my health has really deteriorated in the past few, few months and I've actually been, put, been on antibiotics since the 27th of December and I've had to be put on additional ones because it's going to take so long for me to see a consultant So what, what can be done for Catherine in that situation? Well, I think there are, there are big problems. I think, Catherine, I remember you from uh, the the board's annual review, uh, if I'm right. There are uh, issues around long-term uh, conditions. For, I mean, for me, you are absolutely not a tick box. And the Alliance does some really important work for us in making sure that we can actually hear uh, the opinions of people like yourself. And I think I personally have a, a bit, I hope, a bit of a track record of being genuine in wanting to hear what people have to say to me. That doesn't mean I can always fix it, but I am certainly very willing from uh, hearing you again today. I heard you, I think, at the annual review too, to continue my discussion with the health board about what more they can do about long-term conditions and uh, the waiting times for people uh, who are suffering significant pain. Part of the additional money that we are putting into uh, waiting times is targeted at some of those areas that I think you're talking about to make sure that boards come to us with specific things they're going to do in return for the money in order to make a difference to a specific number of people. So uh, I'm going to look closely at that uh, with my colleagues in uh, government but I'd also be very happy to hear more from you about what additional support you th- you want and you believe you need that you you are no longer getting. Catherine, thank you very much indeed for, for getting in touch. Um, Jean, you know, Catherine was talking there about tick boxes. Is, mm-hmm. is, is that something that, um, that boards do carry out, that they're going to consult with communities? They're going to, before they close something down. And, and you know, is, is in the mean, you know, you can sometimes get this back that, you know, well, the decision's been made and therefore it stops people coming forward when they, they may have, maybe have that thought that it is just going through an exercise here. Yeah, and I and actually I, I I've heard this many times, and uh, to some extent I understand it. My own view is that boards should not be solely consulting people when they want to change a service. I think boards should 
be engaged in a continuous exercise of consulting with the communities that they serve. Now, that's not easy to do. Um, I'm, I, we've already had some discussions with health board chief execs and chairs about uh, what more they can do and, and the skills around it. It's a, it's a skilled exercise mm. to genuinely consult in a way that people feel that they are being heard albeit that they may not always then get the decision that they actually want. And I think we need to be clear that consulting does not mean always agreeing. Right. Um, but I do think there is more that we can do um, in our health service to continuously consult with people about two things, what, what they want their health service to provide and what are the, the, uh, the measures that would tell them that their health service is successful. We've got targets um, there is a lot of debate around targets. Um, my personal view is that I'm quite happy to talk about whether we've got the right targets or not. But first of all, I need us to do more to meet the ones we've got. And then we'll have that conversation. But I need to know what people want to measure, how they want to measure a, a successful health service. Uh, is it the targets we've got just now or is it something different? OK, back on the phone lines. Here's Alex. Alex Wallace, good morning to you. Good morning. Morning. You're through to the health minister. Hi, Mrs Freeman. Uh, as you know, through my MSP, I've been trying to get a meeting with you for the last uh, year uh, regarding my wife. She was one of the first patients to go through an operation at Queen Elizabeth in Glasgow. The surgeon discharged her twice against her wishes and the family's wishes with a full bottle of uh, liquid morphine, which is a controlled drug. Uh, two days after that, she ended up in life support due to brain swelling, lungs full of fluid and a heart attack. <clears throat> at the first meeting with the surgeon, he admitted that the systems weren't working properly in the theatres since it was a new hospital. He also played 14, I repeat, 14 other liabilities last year. Uh, we found her medical records has been uh, altered and inaccurate information put on them. The clinical director even says this on audio recording. Our experts has took just under £7,000 to try and get a proper report, which they can't do because of the records. Uh, our case was part of the committee meeting that you ordered up in uh, January of this year and to see what's happening regarding this Queen Elizabeth. And we were told from the committee that in their office that my wife's case is not uh, certainly an individual case. Um, again, my MSP... Bob Doris has been repeatedly asking you to, uh, for you to give us a meeting uh, and you're keeping uh, saying no. Also with your predecessor, Shona Robinson. My wife's on 186 tablets per week and I'd like to know what you feel about this. I've got audio recordings of the surgeon and other uh, clinical directors stating what I'm telling you now and also our medical records is proof of negligence. So what are you going to do regarding this system? So, good morning, Alex. Um, I, I did think as you were speaking there that this that you, uh, your MSP is Bob Doris. Uh, I think as Bob and I have explained uh, to you, my understanding is that you're currently involved in legal proceedings uh, on this case. As I've told you, this is what I've been telling Bob as well, and you know this. Our legal proceedings is now at the end because the experts has took just under £7,000 and you are not doing nothing about this. How can we get a proper report stating that there were negligence when my wife's medical records have been altered? 
So my understanding was that you were still uh, in the middle of, of legal proceedings and in those circumstances, um, it's not right for me uh, to intervene until those are concluded. If you're telling me now that those legal proceedings are concluded, then I will be in touch with uh, Bob as your MSP and we will organise that discussion. Okay, that's, that's um, an answer there for you, uh, Alex. Hopefully, you, you'll just hang on to that and um, let the, the health secretary move in on that one if that is the situation. But thank you very much indeed for your call. I uh, want to, to go to Lee just before we go to the break. Lee, hello, good morning to you. You're through to the health minister. Good morning to you both. Um, I represent um, a group of women, and I'm indeed one myself, um, who received uh, lower than average doses of chemotherapy at NHS Payside. Um, <clears throat> the Chief Medical Officer for Scotland um, has been wanting to embed the principle of realistic medicine in the way clinicians deliver care to people in Scotland. And one of its central aims is the principle that decision-making should be a shared process with the patients and that the patients and their doctors should have an honest discussion about what treatment is and is not best for that person. And that means that we're really moving away from patients being passive care. I think that patients have a right to be informed and to be listened to and to have their decisions respected. And at NHS Payside, this clearly was not the case because we breast cancer patients were not provided with fully informed consent about what our dosages would entail and how they differed from other cancer networks in Scotland. So the situation has made many patients question the decisions being made by their doctors and what information they're not being told about. So Broadly, I, I'd like to ask you, Ms. Freeman, please, what will you do to ensure that clinicians have an honest discussion with their patients about their treatment options? What accountability is there to ensure that patients are given fully informed consent? And how do you go about repairing the lack of trust that may now exist between cancer patients and the caregiving community? I mean, ideally, we'd like to see the Scottish government provide clarity on the purpose and remit of the regional cancer networks and on the accountability structures for their decision-making processes. Right, Lee, we'll stop you there. Apart from the fact we've got a, a dodgy telephone line, you keep disappearing. But I think we've got the, 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 the gist of the whole thing. I mean, this is a big story um, throughout Scotland, but particularly in Tayside. Well, it's, it's primarily it is in Tayside mm. because it was in Tayside that we, it was, a, a, from memory, a whistleblower that raised with us concerns about the... Uh, dosage of chemotherapy that was being given uh, to women who uh, suffered from breast cancer and that that was different from the uh, agreed clinical position uh, with oncologists in the rest of Scotland. And it was the chief medical officer's action that then uh, produced the result that we're now dealing with, that that uh, uh, was uh, lower than elsewhere that that was not clinically acceptable. And importantly, uh, also, as uh, Lee has just said, that there, there was not full information given to the women concerned uh, about so that they could make a decision about whether or not they were prepared to accept different kind of treatment, mm -hmm. a lower dosage of treatment. Now, the other thing it's important to say is that the clinical uh, group, the expert group that looked at all of this in the first place, uh, also took the view that the level of risk that women uh, had, were exposed to was low and that risk report will be published uh, in the coming days so that people can see that for themselves. 
Um, the oncologists involved in Tayside have now uh, altered their practice to come in line with the rest of uh, Scotland in terms of the treatment of breast cancer and the dosages of chemotherapy. Uh, and the board itself will now look further at what more it needs to do inside that board uh, to make sure that the clinical practice... And, of course, you know, clinicians have to take a degree of uh, flexibility in their decisions because it should be a patient-centred service. So that may mean that uh, the treatment I receive could differ from uh, a woman sitting beside me, and mm. that would be the right clinical decision. This this sits outside of that degree of uh, individual clinician discretion, if you like, which is why we've acted on it. Now, the Chief Medical Officer has also uh, commissioned uh, Dr Aileen Keel, uh, another expert in the area, to continue the work and make sure that in Tayside, uh, the, A, the individual women uh, affected themselves have uh, someone to talk to and, and explanations to be given because I completely understand how worrying that will be for people. It just puts a doubt in your head and uh, to some extent we need to try as best we can to answer that doubt but also to look at uh, what the, the policy is and whether it is being uh, followed uh, across uh, all our clinical networks with respect to cancer treatment, and then we'll see if we need to widen that to other treatments. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, just a reminder of the telephone number if you'd like to join us, if you have a question you'd like to put to the, the Health Minister, or treble three twenty twenty four zero one. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. If you'd like to put a point to Health Secretary Jean Freeman, who's uh, with us in the studio this morning, I just want to go back, if if you don't mind, uh, to uh, the article, well, the, the story we're talking about in, in Tayside. Um, I'm looking at the front page of uh, the Courier, the daily newspaper in, in Tayside, uh, regarding this whole situation, uh, regarding the, the treatment. And it says here, you were talking about giving them more information, giving the families more information, etc., etc., uh, Gina, it says families have blasted free, feeble excuses and demanded clear answers over, over the health risks imposed by a breast cancer treatment scandal at NHS Tayside. And they're saying here that a dedicated helpline set up to support those affected has been shut down just after one week. So, you know, uh, they still feel that they're not getting the supports that, that they require, according to this article anyway, and, and from what we've heard as well. Well, well, that's not a, that's just wrong. All right, that that's wrong that families should feel like that, and that women should feel like that. And if that helpline has been closed uh, after only one week, then uh, as soon as this program's finished, I'm going to ask for it to be reopened, uh, because you know people take time. You need time to process. You you don't have immediate questions necessarily. You may have uh, immediate questions you get answered and then a few a few days later you think of something else comes into your head and you want an answer to that too. And so our health service and NHS Tayshire side should be open to answering those questions for as long as people have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this was not an acceptable situation, albeit that the experts have assessed that the level of risk that women have been exposed to is low, um, that doesn't, in a sense, that doesn't matter. I can only imagine how I would feel. Uh, so that those those helplines uh, and the ability to answer the questions should be there for as long as people have questions that need answered. And so I will take that up as soon as we finish this programme. As I said, the risk report 
uh, will be published shortly. Um, I have asked for it to be um, it, you know, the risk report itself as it stands, as the chief medical officer received it, will be published. Uh, but it, it is quite medicalised, if I uh, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've said that you know, we need to also be able to explain it clearly to people, uh, explain it so I can understand it better than, than I currently do, for example, and with a bit of luck that, that's also helpful uh, to other folks so that people get clear answers to their questions and that we keep on doing that until people feel that all the questions they have have been answered but also the support that they rightly should look for is there for them. And we will make sure that that happens in Tayside. Tayside Health Board was one of your first headaches, really, um, with uh, the chief executive going, the chairman going. Do you feel it's on the right way now? Have you got every confidence in the team you've got in there at the moment? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I think that the uh, actually think that the swift action that was taken on receipt of the report uh, by the chief executive with the clinicians uh, is a measure uh, of his determination to ensure that Tayside Health Board regains the, the good reputation uh, that it had uh, and that actually a great deal of its work deserves to have a good reputation. Uh, sometimes we focus, and we focus quite rightly, where things go wrong, but we shouldn't forget uh, the many, many instances uh, across our health service where things go really well. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, as we sit here today talking, yes, we are talking about problems and we should do, but there are thousands of NHS staff working very hard today, right now, this minute, uh, helping people, saving lives, making lives better, bringing new life in, uh, into, into being. And we shouldn't forget that that is happening as well. OK, back on the phone lines, Margaret Brown. Margaret, good morning to you. Good morning. <clears throat> You're through to the Health Secretary. What's your point, to, please? Um, I'm wondering up about my granddaughter. She's 10. About last July, August, she started having pains in her tummy. And she, she had already been under a consultant for gastro reflux and headaches about two years ago. Um, so she's been attending to this... Um, consultant we're going round in circles um, she's still got these terrible pains in her tummy and in January one Sunday night she was crying mummy take me to the doctor so my my daughter took her up to the accident emergency and she waited from nine at night till three o'clock in the morning and they said she had a urine infection but she was given antibiotics it would take 48 hours the 48 hours, she still had the pains. So my daughter took her back. It wasn't a urine infection. It was just because of the, the nature of where they had taken the, the tests from. Um, so this has been going on. She's been, by the um, advice of the, the consultant, she's been on a dairy-free diet, a wheat-free diet, a full gluten-free diet. She's now on, my daughter's put her on a, under the nightshade group, uh, tomatoes, potatoes, etc. Nothing's making any difference. Sometimes she looks ghastly. She's white. She's got dark circles under her, her eyes. The consultant says it's IBS. Now, I, to me, IBS has... Di- it, different people have different um, symptoms, but she has this pain all the time. She has neither 
extreme diarrhea or ex- extreme constipation, which you would put down to IBS. But Mar- Margaret, Margaret, can I just stop you there? I understand uh-huh. going through all the symptoms, but what is your point to the health secretary? Right, I'm getting, I'm getting to the, this point. Well, very quickly, please. Right. Um, my, my daughter requested a, a second opinion in December, and she got a letter, um, a standard letter, saying it could take so many weeks. And so my daughter phoned up, but the, the number on the bottom of the letter was non-existent. So she got through, and um, she, 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 she eventually got through to the, the appointments people. And they said um, a specialised children's um, appointment could take up to seven months. So we thought, that, that's terrible. Anyway... She got. She had says to the consultant. She, had, she knew she had requested a second opinion, and it was a gastro consultant that my daughter wanted her daughter to see. And now we've been told it could take up to a year. Now, to have in this day and age to have a child of ten, anybody, and in, in, intensive tummy pains for a whole year, and they don't, I mean, she's had all the non-invasive tests done. Okay. Give, give the health secretary a chance to, yes, to answer okay. this then, please. That's all right. It's OK. Take a breath. Uh, so good morning, Margaret. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about the troubles your granddaughter's um, experiencing and it must be a real worry for you and her mum and all the family. Um, your daughter was right to ask for a second opinion. Um, but, uh, you know, and I can't, I'm, I'm not medically qualified, so I can't comment on the symptoms or the specific issues or any of that, as I'm sure you will understand. Which um, health board is it? Which area do you live in? Edinburgh. You live in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you don't mind, uh, uh, after again, after the programme, if you would leave your contact details, then my office will get in touch with you um, to get some of the detailed information uh, till we see... Uh, we can speak to the health board and find out exactly why they are saying it would take that long before you get a second opinion. Uh, and Because uh, that seems to me, as it does indeed to you, uh, a very long time indeed and at a length of time that's really not acceptable for anyone, uh, but in particular in this case, a 10-year-old who has been experiencing this for some time. So if you're, if you're happy to do that and yes, leave your I contact details, mm-hmm. then uh, we will uh, follow that up with the board just to check why, why they are saying that a second opinion would take as long as that before you would be, your daughter would get it. I appreciate that. Because she's also lost weight. She's lost mm. two kilos, which is quite a lot for a child to lose. Right, well, if you just hang on there, Margaret, we'll get your details and uh, we'll, we'll pass them on to the Health Secretary. And, and as, as you were saying, uh, Gina, it's a long time for to be referred, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long waiting time now for any yes. age. yes. Right. Yes, okay. Uh, that number again, if you'd like to join us, 033-2020-401. If you have a question you would like to put to the Health Secretary, we'll speak to Maxine after these. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Maxine, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Okay, you're through to the Health Minister. What's your point, please? Hi, thank you very much for taking my call. What I'd like to bring a point to the Health Minister, and I appreciate her being here this morning, is the waiting times between going to your GP with a complaint and him then assessing you and passing you on to referrals for a consultant. 
I live in NHS Highland area and the waiting times are ridiculous. I was diagnosed um, last year after a complaint with my back as having problems with my spine, in particularly with my discs. Um, I got speaking to a consultant on the 31st of July last year and we both agreed, and it was my choice, that rather than going down the route of surgery, I'd opt to speak to someone from what is called the pain clinic to have steroid injections into my spine. The, I didn't know at the time, and I probably should have been told at the time, that the waiting list was exceptionally long. From the 31st of July, I only received my injections on the 21st of March this year, which was some eight months. In between times, I couldn't stick the pain in my back any longer. It had absolutely reduced my standard of living to next to nothing. And the only thing that was put on offer to me as an in-between time was a variety of different opioid drugs, which really do um, leave you in a state of being like a zombie. I couldn't even communicate with my family. I couldn't drive. I couldn't go through the basic things in the house because you're just switched off. And I went through seven different types of opioid drugs to try and deal with the pain. I then asked my GP to re-refer me to the orthopaedics unit at Rigmore Hospital at the start of December. And I'm still waiting on appointment. I phoned the orthopaedics unit. The secretary that I spoke to was very helpful, very pleasant, very professional but basically told me there is a very, very long waiting list of which I'm on it, and she has no idea when I'll see a consultant. So in the meantime, I drug myself up. The pain injections didn't work, and I don't know where I'm going with this. So good morning, Maxine, um, and thanks for uh, phoning in. Uh, you, you, First of all, you're right. You should have been told when you met the consultant that first time uh, what the waiting times were for the two options that you had in front of you, one being surgery and one being the steroid injections. So you're right that, that you should have been given that information so you could have then uh, had had a more informed choice about what you wanted to do. Uh, mm -hmm. There are uh, significant issues in our waiting times, both for uh, pain relief uh, and for um, orthopaedics. But the... Um, uh, person you spoke to at Reg Moore uh, should have given, been able to give you some idea about how long you would have to wait for that um, orthopaedic consultation. Because uh, I'm presuming now that um, having had the steroid injection and it not having uh, the effect that you would have hoped for, you're now looking at whether or not surgery is an option. That's uh, correct. Yeah. In fact, the, the, the steroid injections have actually made what was a pretty bad condition Ten times worse. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I'm, I'm not uh, a doctor, so uh, I'm not going to comment on that. But I am aware that, it, you know, it, as the opioid uh, painkillers can work for some people, but not for uh, many others equally. I know that the steroid injections can work for some, but again, not for others. Um, so I... I I uh, think that uh, Regmore uh, and that health board should certainly be able to give you an indication uh, of when uh, you would be seen, given the, the length of their waiting list. They should be able to tell you that. 
if that still feels to you to be too long to wait, and I completely appreciate that in your current circumstances with that level of pain, any length of time is too long to wait, then you should ask your GP for your referral to be an urgent referral. And again, if that doesn't all pan through for you, then either directly or through your GP, um, uh, your uh, sorry, your MSP, uh, you are perfectly entitled to get in touch with me directly uh, and ask me if there is anything more that I can do once you've uh, taken those additional steps. Okay, Maxine. Maxine, thank you very much indeed. I want to move on because we're fastly running out of time as we always do on these particular shows. Let's go uh, uh, to John Carr next. John, what do you want to say today? Good morning. Good morning, good morning, and thanks for taking the time to come in this morning. Uh, I, I have just one very simple question. Um, we in this country had an agreement with the country that if we paid a tax called national insurance that we would be looked after. Uh, we paid faithfully that tax, uh, and it appears to me that in today's regime, we're not only not a priority, we're we're second, third down the line uh, for our national insurance. The people, it seems to me, who are making the decisions about the national, uh, our national health service don't use it because they have the finances to use private health. And at the end of the day, when you're finished working and you're finished doing your bit, they take what left you've got money off you to look after you in your old age. I think that that is a disgrace. I think it's terrible. And I would like to ask the Minister how she feels about it. OK. Hi, John. Um, so two things. First of all, uh, can I say really clearly to you that I absolutely do the, use the NHS. I always have done. Uh, I did work in it for some time. And as I said, uh, so did and do members of my family. Um, so... Uh, the NHS is uh, a really important, uh, as you said quite rightly, uh, a contract. It was a contract kind of after the Second World War that created uh, our welfare state, uh, of which the NHS is a really important part. The national insurance uh, monies that you uh, talk about uh, don't come to the Scottish Government. They uh, go to the UK Government. Um, and overall, the Scottish Government's budget uh, will be cut by about £2 billion uh, in the period up to uh, 2020. Uh, even so, um, just as I said earlier in the programme, uh, just under 50% of the entire Scottish budget goes into our National Health Service, including uh, our Health and Social Care Service. My job as the Health Secretary is to make sure that we are getting the maximum amount uh, from that money and there are challenges, undoubtedly. There are things we have to fix that aren't right. People are waiting too long for treatment that they need in too many cases. Uh, and there are other areas where we need to improve, not least uh, the level of care at home. But we are working hard to do that. And we are working hard to honour that contract. I remember my dad telling me about that when he uh, was a young man uh, coming back from the Second World War. It means a very great deal to me that we honour that contract. But not all of the monies that people pay in order to see it uh, honoured come direct to the Scottish Government, I'm afraid. Uh, should that uh, one day be the case, then uh, we would, of course, continue uh, to use it for our National Health Service and for our welfare system. But right now, we are doing uh, everything we can, and I'm not trying to dodge that there are serious mm. problems we need to solve. 
Okay, John, thank you very much indeed for your, your question. Uh, final caller, I think, is going to be Michael. Michael, can you put your point very quickly, please? Uh, how are you doing? It's regarding the new Queen Elizabeth Hospital. In 2008-2009, Nicola was the health minister, and I emailed her, and I says, there's no logic to building that hospital there. I says, it's going to be the biggest hospital in Britain, and it's going to be next to the biggest sewerage works in Scotland. I says, it doesn't tick any boxes, and it's a billion pound of Scottish taxpayers' money, and I says, and you'll have all these problems, right? Drag garden, air conditioning, everything else, air quality. So uh, I heard the Beetson move back out. Uh, so all these bacterial infections and all this, it's where it's cited. Uh, I don't know if it was because it was her constituency, but it was she made the decision. And I said it will bring down the SNP government. I said it'll end up the biggest old folks home in the world. What do you think of that? Health Minister? Uh, so uh, we, we have the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. Um, so, in a sense, going back to whether or not we should have it isn't going to take us very far. We do have it. There, there has been uh, many inquiry uh, and experts looking at whether or not being close to uh, the uh, uh, other facility that you mentioned um, makes a difference, causes any risk. There has never been any evidence found that it does do that. And some of the more recent uh, um, isolated issues around infection in the Queen Elizabeth, there is absolutely no evidence that it comes from that other facility. However, the independent review that I have commissioned that will look at the design, the construction uh, of that building and its continuing maintenance uh, in terms of how well it contributes to infection prevention and control will again look at all of these issues uh, and see what more we can do with uh, a, a very large hospital that we do now have that does some fantastic work uh, day in and day out for people, whether or not there is more that we can do to uh, increase its infection prevention and control. Michael, thank you very much indeed for that point, just getting in into the end of the programme today. Uh, Health Minister, thank you very much indeed. It's taken thank a while you. to get you here, but we have indeed, and for answering uh, the questions that have come in as openly as you can, um, we are going now into the next few months with more health service, or another winter coming up. Is the health service in Scotland safe in your hands? Uh, it's as safe as I can make it um, with all the efforts that I uh, can undertake. I mean, what what I I can't guarantee many things uh, in this life, and I can't guarantee many things as a health secretary. But what I can guarantee to your listeners is that it's what I think about every single minute of the day, and I am absolutely determined to see the improvements that people need and deserve in our health service, notwithstanding the fact that every single day it does some excellent work. Health Secretary Jean Freeman, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.